Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? Doing so well today. Yesterday was Halloween, so it was a good time in our neighborhood. We had the kids from the uh, from the Quiet Hamlet community ringing our doorbell all night long, and we were happy about that. Good to see them out and about. How was your Halloween, Tim? It was great. I got to do some trick-or-treating with my kids. They dressed as a cat and a dog, and I really wanted to be the Headless Horseman, but I felt like that would have been a little too gruesome for uh, this cat and dog, uh, you know, thing that we had going on. Yeah, I could see how there's a, a tough way to pull off the headless horseman and not have it be gruesome uh, in any way. <laughs> yeah, maybe in a few years I'll pull that out. Yeah, yeah, I, I was Bob Ross this year, oh, so that was kind of fun. Bob Ross, that's just as good. Did you have the afro and did you have the paint easel and everything? You got it. Wow, you got it. The whole thing. Wow. Yeah, good for it you. It was fun. Nice. Yeah, thanks. It's a great, uh, it's a great idea for a costume. It was pretty good. I mean, kids know him for some reason, and they sell the costume, so it wasn't super original. But I, I just bought the costume, mm-hmm. you know. But I mean, I thought it was unique enough that it would be fun. Yeah. And not too dark. And anyway, Lance, speaking of not too dark, we have an amazing guest on this episode, someone that we essentially grew up watching on MTV. His name is Dave Holmes. He first broke onto the scene as an MTV VJ in, I guess, the contest, Who Wants to Be an MTV VJ? And he came in second, but became that MTV VJ that we remember. And we guested on one of his podcasts called Troubled Waters where it's basically a pop culture trivia show that we had an absolute blast on. So make sure to check out that on his podcast, Troubled Waters. But what we're talking about here today with Dave is a little bit about his career, a little bit about uh, his other podcasts, but primarily it's Waiting for Impact, his podcast that he did with the Exactly Right Network. And it's a really fascinating pop culture mystery about the boy band otherwise known as Sudden Impact, that really never made an impact at all. Ironically, the only impact that they seem to have made was on someone like Dave, and he put this investigative series together to find out what happened to this boy band. They were featured in the Boys to Men video, Motown Philly, and a lot of people will remember this moment. It's about two to three seconds, and they point very assertively at the camera. Michael Bivens is in the shot as well, and then nothing happens. And they're put in the group of other bands, like Belle Bib DeVoe, Boys to Men, uh, another bad creation was was the other one. All of those achieved some level of success, some a little bit more than others. But sudden impact didn't really do anything. But David unpacks the mystery in this ten part investigative series, and you said it in the interview. There's no one better than him to pull this one apart and tell this story because he does it in such an honest way and addresses issues like dreaming big and the purity of this pop culture moment resonating for people. So it's fantastic conversation with Dave here and a fantastic podcast. Yeah, the podcast, I I think, hinges a lot on Dave's natural curiosity. And he was so intertwined with music videos in that era that he really is the perfect person to tell the story. I can't, I literally can't think of someone better to tell this story. So in addition to that topic, we also get into some discussion about what it's like to be famous and how famous people are treated, what it's like to have these moments in pop culture that you get wrapped up in, goes into some of the people that appeared on the real world, and just a conversation that flies by. Make sure to check out his podcasts. He's got Waiting for Impact. Of course, we guested on Troubled Waters. And he's got another podcast called Homophilia 
that he does with his friend Matt McConkey. So he is a true force of nature and also editor-at-large at Esquire. Dave Holmes is uh, a big deal, and uh, we're happy to have him here on the show. And Tim, we got big news about our subscription service. This is coming together. It's looking great. It's sounding great. We can't wait for it to be fully unfurled for our listeners. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, you can check it out at crawlspace.supportingcast.fm. We do a bonus show. It's a weekly bonus show. And we also give ad-free episodes, two ad-free episodes most weeks. Sometimes they are early as well. And the Crawlspace subscription service is bundled with the missing subscription service. So you will get some missing content too. It's basically a bundle and you get you get a lot of extra content. So check it out. Okay, so follow us on social media at Crawlspace Pod or Crawlspace Podcast. Thanks a lot for listening. We're going to get to Dave in just a second after we hear from our sponsors. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Welcome to the podcast, Dave Holmes. How are you today, Dave? I have never been better. How are you guys? We're doing really well. Twice within a week, we get to speak with you. I love that. I know. We can't thank you enough for this. Oh, my God. My pleasure. Tim was just saying that he was binging your show. You got a couple of shows. I have a few, yeah. Several shows. So let's give the overview for our listeners. Yeah, I do a show that you guys were just guests on called Troubled Waters, formerly International Waters. It is a uh, sort of a pop culture panel game show kind of a situation, which you guys both did great at. And uh, yeah, which I, I think that episode is is out now. Been doing that for a while. I do uh, a podcast called Homophilia. My friend uh, Matt McConkie and I talk to interesting LGBTQ plus folks about life and pop culture and everything. And then there is Waiting for Impact, which Tim is your, that is your, uh, <laughs> apparently it's your actual wallpaper now. Yep. So that's, uh, that is an incredible show of support. You've actually painted a whole wall of your office or logo, <laughs> which uh, which means a lot. Uh, Lance, you did the same with Troubled Waters. Yeah, uh, Waiting for Impact is a 10-episode uh, investigative podcast that uh, came out uh, at the end of last year and is all out now. And please tell people what the premise of Waiting for Impact is. Waiting for Impact is a, is a thing I've been wanting to do for a very long time. And finally, the, uh, the, the, the planets aligned and allowed me to do it. It is an investigation into a, a pop culture mystery that, that sort of had me perplexed for many years, 30 years, as a matter of fact. Uh, in 1991, uh, Boys to Men made their debut with a, with a song and video called Motown Philly. In that video, the man who, who discovered and produced them, Michael Bivens of Bell Biv DeVoe and New Edition, introduces the acts on his roster. He had a development deal with, um, with Motown at the time. And those groups were Boys to Men, uh, Bell Biv DeVoe, a group called Another Bad Creation, who had a couple top 10 singles. And then, in the middle of the video, for a little bit less than three seconds, there is a group called Sudden Impact. And it's five white guys in white shirts and ties. And they're around Michael Bivens in a semicircle. And their name is in lights above them. And they point at the camera very boldly, like, here we come. We are Sudden Impact. And that's all that ever happened. And it's one of those things that, like, A, in the moment, I wondered what happened to set like when's that album coming in, in the dead. yeah so it's it's a thing that i wondered for a long time and it's also a thing that similarly aged people of like of you know generation x who were big music video junkies as i was it was sort of like a way to know a, a, another sort of pop culture head would uh was like if you remembered sudden impact so i i'd always wondered what the story was because i knew there was a story 
and then I uh, and then I, I swindled some people into letting me do ten episodes about it. It's at my my quest to track them down and find out what happened is out. And then, as I suspected, it ends up touching on a lot of themes that I think are really interesting about um, about success and failure and and art and big dreams and ambition and and all the stuff that I love to talk about. So, waiting for impact. The subtitle is a Dave Holmes passion project because it is. Like, I feel like I need to put on the table that it's a very weird and esoteric thing. You're right. It is a hyper-specific mystery. Mm-hmm. It is a music industry mystery, I'd even go go so far to say, because yeah. it really opened my eyes. into Like, I had no idea of w- what kind of journey a band or a group could actually take and how they get kind of pulled around, twisted and turned around. That sort of happened to these guys. So yeah. I really love that element. You are like the perfect person to tell this story. Thank you. Thank you. I, I will take that as a compliment, even though it's a very weird story uh, to tell. What, what I love about like what I get to do with my life is that I, I get to sort of follow these whims and see what's there. You may or may not remember the three seconds of this music video from 1991, but whether you do or don't, you know somebody who who had a dream and, and it didn't quite work out. Or maybe you yourself had a dream and it didn't quite work out. Or maybe you had a dream and you went to pursue it and and something else ended up happening that's better. We all like have a relationship with like ambition and the idea of like being somebody and making something of yourself. And life rarely works out the way that you plan it when you plan it. And I just figured like, I, I kind of felt like these guys were uh, would offer a good example of what can happen to a young person who has big dreams. And, and good things start to happen, but the expected thing does not. In Los Angeles, where I'm surrounded by people who moved out here, you know, either to be stars or to work in the industry, and life rarely gives you exactly what you expect. Besides finding these people, I, I also wanted to talk to friends of mine whose life lives went in unexpected directions and just, you know, talk, talk to them about where they are and how they got where they are and where they thought they'd be in 1991 and whether those two things look alike at all. Because they don't for me, really. Let's talk about you for a couple of minutes and your career path and the trajectory that you were on because you're also a very motivated and dream-worthy individual. Although I am not where... I expected to be when I was, you know, when I was 20 years old in 1991. I think the 1991 version of myself would lose his mind if he knew what an average day of mine looks like. It's not like glamorous, but it's fun. In 1991, when Boys to Men put out this video, I was in college and I was really flailing. I was very much at sea in college. I was in uh, in Worcester, Massachusetts, home of Crawl Space Media, um, <laughs> at a, right. uh, a small Catholic school called Holy Cross, which is a great place, but not necessarily the right place for me. I was really trying to like turn myself into somebody practical, and it wasn't really taking. And I was just I was depressed and hammered, and just not not in a, not in a good spot. And I knew that I loved to write, and I knew that I loved music and popular culture and I, I knew that I had something to offer the world but I had no idea how to go about doing it and uh, and it was frustrating I graduated college I, I got into advertising for a few years but I was sort of not on the creative side I was on kind of the number crunching side and I was just I was frustrated because again I just didn't know I didn't know like how to bring a you know my creative self to the table I didn't I didn't have the connections to like move into television or film or, or the music industry or whatever in around 1997 I quit 
and I and I started temping. And I just was like, I'm in New York City. I was in New York City. I'm gonna take time and just figure out what it is that I do and, and how I'm gonna do it. And I was like temping at an ad agency and I saw an ad, a story in Billboard on billboard.com about uh, MTV having an open call for VJs, which was like my dream job. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna, there's no way I'm gonna get that job, but I'm gonna go and stand in line and meet some people and see if I can make it happen. And it ended up being a whole thing that was on live television and I didn't get the job, but sure enough, I did meet some people and they did kind of bring me back around and I and I started working there and then I got on the air there and I was there for five years and had a wonderful time that I kind of, in the back of my mind was like, I get, you know, probably my next thing will be like, you know, some big TV, you know, big network TV show or something. And that didn't really pan out. My writing career did. And now, now I'm at Esquire Magazine and I get to do a bunch of podcasts and I get to write freelance all over the place and it's been a weird journey and it's very difficult to explain to my mother what I actually do but I get to do it and support myself and I think 20 year old depressed and flailing Dave would be pretty psyched he wouldn't understand what we're the three of us are doing right now but he'd be psyched it wasn't like you were completely disqualified or completely out of the running to be a VJ you actually were the runner-up yeah. right I was, yeah. So it was, yeah, it was like a live televised, like, talent search thing. It was, it, thank God, it was the first of its kind. Now, th there have been a lot of versions of this. The Food Network has one, and ESPN had one, and and there are these big, long, like, 18-week processes where, you know, someone's eliminated every week. MTV didn't quite know that you could wring that much content out of it. So in my case, it was like, it was three days. And at the end of it, it they, there were 10 and then there were five and then there were two and I was number two. But it worked out. I was old enough when that happened, I guess I was 27, that I was like, I need to put all of my energy behind making like behind making something happen, behind like calling all of the people I had met and like pitching ideas and just like putting all of my weight into pushing the door open. And luckily I was able to do that. And it's a very weird thing because that, like it was such an impractical thing to do as a 27 year old with like a regular job. It was it was very silly to like blow off work and go like stand in line to be a VJ. Like that was silly and I very nearly didn't go. But it was a choice that I made that literally changed the entire course of my life. I want to ask you about that because I found that to be one of my favorite moments of the podcast was when you talked about how you almost didn't go. You know, because it, it was so, it was such a strange thing to do and, and a little, yeah, I don't know, a little corny or something. I don't know. But I, I remember being in bed because I, I, I woke up super early because I figured a person like me needs to be seen before they're tired of seeing people before like the people who I'm about to see are like worn out. I, I, I need to see them while they're fresh because I'm not going to be like a big, wild, crazy personality. So I got up at like 3.30 or 4 in the morning and I hopped on a, uh, in, a uh, in a taxi and I went to Times Square and I stood in line. But I, I remember being in bed because it was so early and it was such a weird thing to do and the potential for embarrassment was so high that I was like, why are you doing, why would you do this? This is silly. Go to bed. Go back to bed. Like go to go to bed, wake up in three hours, go to work like a person and don't be foolish. And I, I don't know what it was that like forced me out of bed on that morning. But if I hadn't done it, I literally don't know what my life would look like right now. Like I, I really don't. So the message, not to spoil too much about the show, but the message is like, do the thing. Like do do the silly thing that might be embarrassing. Do it something great could happen and you might not know what it is. Do you often try to think about what your life 
would be like had you not gone and then you just say well why am i thinking about that i don't think about it too much i mean i i do think that i would eventually find myself somewhere interesting you know the the good things that have happened to me since then i can trace back to being at mtv it it gave me enough of a platform to like make connections and do some good networking and all that kind of thing and it and it made me you know, live TV is such a harrowing experience that it made me kind of fearless for everything after. And I just truly don't know. You kind of mentioned how you, you were obsessed with this story, this this moment yeah. from this music video. Are there other moments like that for you? I mean, this is the major one. This one's interesting because it, it was part of a video that was one of the biggest of the year. And, and it was at a time when like, Every young person was glued to MTV. Any free moment that I had, I would spend in front of MTV. So I saw, you know, for, there were months and months in 1991 when this video was on five times a day. And, and it's like the boldness of the pointing. It felt a bit like, uh, we didn't have these at the time really, but like a post-credits scene. Like, so, like it was a, a teaser for something that was coming that had like huge, you know, like they had Michael Bivens behind it. It was like New Kids on the Block were still pretty big at the time. So it was like, well, surely this is going to blow up. And then it just didn't. There's something so pure about that moment, about that like almost arrogance, just like here we come. And then it just completely vanished. And yeah, there are, there are loads of like people who were supposed to have huge careers and didn't. And, you know, bands that were supposed to blow up and didn't, or, or bands that did blow up and then the second album went nowhere. The thing that we do culturally when somebody tries to be famous and doesn't get famous or is famous and then loses it is like we kind of tend to laugh at them. I don't think that's the correct response. Like fame as a, as a be all and end all goal wise is like not necessarily great. And what ends up happening to a person when they don't get it or when they lose it ends up being a little bit more interesting and maybe better and certainly healthier there are all these excerpts from matthew perry's uh memoir that are that are dropping now and it's like all he wanted was to be famous and he got to be as famous as a person can be and like and it sucked like it was terrible for him and it nearly killed him i think a lot of people who came to la wanted to be matthew perry who didn't get to be matthew perry are maybe doing better that's worth examining and exploring and celebrating. That was something that I wanted to ask you about is this concept of fame. And I'm glad you used the Matthew Perry example because that's a great example of the roller coaster and how it did almost kill him. So yeah, can you just kind of, I don't know, unpack that a little bit more? Like what is it about fame that you think is so appealing to people? And then people also love saying, what does he have to complain about? Like he's famous. Yeah. I think that we're kind of naive when it comes to the idea of fame. Maybe not so much now because the wall has sort of eroded with social media and stuff and, and people are being more honest about their experiences and their lives and whatever. But I think certainly in my youth, we looked at famous people as like almost some other sort of species who like didn't have the problems that we had. And who certainly had a lot of money, which were also led to think will just automatically make you happy. And all these things, and they don't. They don't. Everybody has problems. And it's like fame can actually, in many cases, like make average problems much worse. If we look at like, you know, Lindsay Lohan or whatever, certainly she had some issues. But like, if people were taking my pictures when I was 21 years old, holy cow. I, I like that would be a nightmare and I would imagine the same is true for most people like you go through some rough patches but you typically just don't have like photographers following you around also in the early 90s with like the real world and things like that happening we started to see this 
new phenomenon of people who were famous without being rich. So like people came off the real world, which seemed like such a fun thing to do. And then it was like, well, we can't like if we want to be an actor, we can't be because we're recognizable from the real world. Now you can like have your detox tea that you like promote on Instagram or whatever, and you can make money that way. But we didn't have that. So there's this whole generation of like people who we know from MTV largely who then were like, well, now I got to go and working a job and yet I'm also famous so people stop me all day long but like I don't have any money at all. It's a weird one. I, I don't know if you guys watch the the real world homecoming seasons that have uh, gone up on Paramount Plus but they're really really interesting in kind of the same way. And Waiting for Impact I feel like is as much about timing as anything. There's so much nostalgia in the podcast but these guys from Sudden Impact, they were talented musicians I mean they are, they're good singers. Would you say that the music industry and, and just like chance timing had something to do with uh, this? Totally This is one of the things that I learned working in the entertainment industry like I've had so many moments where I pitch an idea and it starts to like, there's some heat around it or whatever. And then it's like the executive who liked it at the place moves to another place and the new executive is not as keen to do your thing. And the, you know, the guy who was keen on it is at a new place and you can't take it there because of some contractual thing. So it just like things just kind of languish. There's no rhyme or reason to it. When things work out, like when there's a Beyonce or whatever, it's like, that's a miracle. Things are designed for, for nothing even really to get made, much less to get made and released and become successful. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Do you see a similarity between them and podcasting today? Because with podcasting, you can invest $150 into some equipment and sign up on Zoom. And if you have something interesting to say, and if you have an interesting guest on, you never know if that's going to take off. And then all of a sudden, you're podcast famous. That's what makes living in 2022 so exciting is that like the means of production are in everyone's hands. You know, you don't have to wait for some like gatekeeper to say like, oh, you're good at this, you're, you do this. You can just do it, people might like it. I would say podcasting is the opposite of what happened to the real world people in that like when you start your own thing, you're in charge of all of it. You know, if you, if you wanna make a show from your garage, you can do it and you're in charge of every single element of it. So when it is released, it is a pure expression of yourself. These like real world people showed up and got in a house and signed away their lives. And whatever they did on camera was then given to a team of editors who could like twist and turn and smash and screw it and remix it into whatever they wanted. So you could look like the complete opposite of who you were. You know, and I've talked to some of these people now. In, in some cases, I think it was Melissa from the real world New Orleans who said this, the way that the editors edited the show, she said, has now replaced her own memory of the time. She was like, she, you know, she wrote down like what happened as it happened, but then she watched it. And now when she remembers it, she remembers the show. Those people were not necessarily like who they were edited to look like, but it's like, even the participants are like, oh, that's how it went down. This is a really exciting time now because you can actually build something on your own. I definitely agree in that it's dangerous and potentially bad depending on your personality. I remember once, this is when I was at MTV, I was like reading the New York Post. There was something in page six about Carson Daly and whoever it was he was dating at the time. What was written, I was like, I know that that's not true because I was like with him for part of that night before and whatever. It just like, I remember reading this thing and being like, this is made up. 
Like, I know that this is made up. It didn't matter. It was in print. And and that was, like, a guy I knew who had to, like, deal with stuff that just was completely made up being in the paper about him. And I remember thinking in the moment, like, oh, that's what fame is. How terrible. I, I want the exact amount of it that will allow me to, like, take meetings with people who I like. And then anything higher than that would give me brain damage. And we, sh we should all know this by now. It never works out well. Well, it, I guess it sometimes can work out well, but it mostly doesn't. Do you think that there's uh, a way to maintain that threshold of too much fame and just enough of what you want? I don't know. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I don't know. I am, I am so happy with where I am right now. Like I've been I've been thinking about that. I would love to take more trips to the bank for sure, but like I am very happy with what I get to do with my life and my energy right now. And it's like, yeah, I want I would love to maintain this forever. I'm just impressed with the people that are super super famous and they still maintain a really private life. Second, I'm super impressed with young stars that can put forth such a mature attitude and give like articulate like well thought out answers yeah i mean i think it's partially there are more famous people now in my youth anyway there were a few who were massively famous and now there are like a million who are moderately famous so maybe you can't get too big ahead and then i think also parents of young performers are a little bit smarter now maybe there have been generations of child stars who have uh have flamed out massively and so i think maybe parenting is different now than it was when we were kids i think we can agree right uh so i would imagine that like the parenting of child stars would be slightly different as well is there a modern equivalent to sudden impact that you're aware of not really because this is also something that interested me about the story this happened in just the moment before the internet, two years later, there were like websites and stuff, you know? Like in 1991, there was nothing. You had a phone on your wall that was like wired into a system. Now, when you show up, you've got your Instagram and you've got your like TikTok ready and you've got your 100 million things that you're doing. So you're constantly leaving a trace. Sudden Impact was sort of the last group to like come and go without there even being like an angel fire like fan site like it was actually hard to find information about them basically like a microfiche situation to like find any any press on them or anything where do you think podcast is going in your story about uh waiting for impact podcasting wasn't even a thing Waiting for Impact is on a network called Exactly Right, which was started by Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark of My Favorite Murder. Karen's been in the in the industry for, for a long time. She's a brilliant comedian. She was the first head writer for Ellen. She herself has had uh, a really interesting kind of ride over the last 30 years. You know, My Favorite Murder was the thing that really, like, put her on the map, right? And Georgia, the same. I had known her forever, and she is a very funny and talented person, but it was My Favorite Murder that put her on the map. So they've started this kind of independent label. And I think they're doing really interesting things with it and they are for sure the only people who would have taken a chance on this weird show and i love that on the other hand there are places like sirius xm or whatever who are giving huge amounts of money to like kevin hart or whoever to, or, and like iHeartRadio giving a ton of money to like will arnett it's interesting to watch this business try to figure out what podcasting is because i think what it is is like guys like you guys who are like passionate and you're you're making a thing from the ground up and you have a personal connection with your listeners and that's like interesting and that's what makes it work the entertainment industry doesn't know how to do that what they know how to do is like shovel money at people who are already famous 
and just hope that something will happen because it's like, oh, uh, Kevin Hart, I know who he is. I'll listen to that. And it mostly doesn't work. As with all podcasts, like most that you try don't work. It's weird watching the major companies try to create energy and excitement around fame, which I just don't think, I don't think, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I guess that Will Arnett podca podcast does really well, but I can't imagine, I can't imagine being like, oh, I got, I've got an extra hour in, in my day. Like, let me fill it with more Will Arnett. I, that <laughs> does not make sense to me at all. I, I think it's, it is more about like the, the, the personal connection of like Christian Slater and pump up the volume, yes. you know, like a, a person alone trying to make something and connect with the world. Like that to me is what's interesting. And like, I hope that it, that podcasting will continue to be a place where you can explore weird ideas like I have done and, and a place where like people who have passions and interests can like create a community and not like another thing to turn into summer blockbusters, you know? Now all I want to do is pump up the volume trivia. Do you remember that though? Like the idea of like being on the radio, there was only so much space on the radio to do it. And you need, I don't know. It's insane how much the world has changed in like three decades. I think that's a great answer and a great take on what makes it really special. And uh, I think it is that personal connection um, as displayed in Pump Up the Volume. Um, it's that passion that comes from inside yeah. or it comes from the connection between the hosts. Exactly. A manufactured situation is not exactly that. Ellen Pompeo of uh, Grey's Anatomy has a podcast. And this is like the perfect example of just like some big media company being like, I don't know, she's famous. Let's give her a whole bunch of money to do a show. But the promo for her show is like, you know, when I was originally uh, approached about a podcast, I said, what, what do I have to offer? But then I thought, I, I'll talk to my interesting friends and we'll we'll have conversations about a wide range of topics. And it's like, that's what podcasting is, Ellen. Like, I don't know what you thought it was. You can see her being like, oh, I'll just talk. And you can see the media company being like, yeah, podcasts, but with her, there's no point to it. You can tell that everyone's just like, I don't know, I guess here's a way to make money somehow or whatever, to like monetize the, you know, one hour in my day that's not monetized. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. What is your go-to like obscure 90s band? that probably had a couple of hits. I don't want to, you know, corner them into the one-hit wonder category, but maybe a couple of hits. Okay. Well, a band from the 90s that I love who had no hits was a, uh, a band called The Greys. Kind of a super group. Um, it's John Bryan, who went on to score a bunch of films. A guy named Jason Faulkner, who is one of my favorite musicians ever. He's uh, an incredible songwriter, uh, and great guitarist. If you watched the um, Taylor Hawkins tribute concerts, he uh, he was the guitarist for uh, for a bunch of like when they brought out Saint Vincent, when they brought out Dave Grohl's daughter, whatever. He's amazing. I love him and a couple other guys. They created a supergroup called the Grace. They have one album called Rochambeau. Their thing was they were gonna not make the mistakes of other supergroups. They were gonna. It was all like everything was twenty five percent apiece. Every songwriter got an equal number of songs on the first album. They were like, this is going to be perfect and we'll never fight. And this is this is going to be an amazing project. They made one album. They fought. None of them speak to each other anymore. It's all over. But that one album, Rochambeau, is unbelievably good. Especially the Jason Faulkner songs. Uh, very Best Years, Friend of Mine, 
Both belong. Some of my all-time favorites. It should have been huge, but it wasn't. And then otherwise, especially at this time of year, I reach back to the, the music of Massachusetts in the early 90s. Buffalo Tom, uh, Letters to Cleo, Juliana Hatfield, the Lemonheads, Gigolo Ants. Um, like that whole sound is my sound of autumn. Like any, any of that like music that makes you want to wear a light jacket and, and drink a warm beverage, I get very into at this time of year. You know what sucks about this is that back in the day, you could say, like, I know that this album's coming out. Now with Spotify, it's like you have a playlist or whatever music app you're using. You have a playlist. And half the time, I'm like, I got to go back and look because this is a cool song. I definitely started buying CDs in that time that we're talking about back in the 90s. And I think the very first CD I ever had was Dookie by Green Day, which is probably the answer for a lot of kids around, you know, or people my age now. I also got big time into Tom Petty right around that time because the greatest hits came out and the Wildflowers came out at right about the same time. Tom Petty's greatest hits is a phenomenal album. Well, my first cassette tape was U2's Actung Baby. Oh, wow. Okay, cassette tapes. Yeah, I definitely had the single for Green Jellies. Oh, what is that? Three, Three Little, Little Pigs? Pigs? Yes. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What was yours, Dave? My first, what, album or... I would say, yeah, let's say uh, your first cassette tape. Okay. Oh, my first, okay. Well, oh, I don't remember what my first cassette tape was. I remember my first album was, because um, I'm like, you know, this is, I got some years on you. So it was, it was vinyl. It, like cassettes didn't really start happening until around seventh grade or whatever. But my, the first thing that I bought was Air Supply. <laughs> The album yes. Lost in Love by Air Supply. I was at the record store at the mall, and and I had enough money for one album. And it was between that and McCartney 2. And I went back and forth. My older brothers were like, you know, you only buy your first album once. And they were like, they made it seem very heavy. <laughs> and I was like, what does this say? Who am I? Like, what do I buy? I know two songs on the, the Air Supply album. I only know one on the McCartney album, but I like it better. I ended up with Air Supply. It wasn't all that great. Yeah, I don't even remember what my like first cassette or... I got a CD player in high school, and it came, uh, I think, that Christmas I got like a Brian Ferry album and Bananarama. And I, and I think the CD player itself came with the, the Journey album. But yeah, first uh, first album was, uh, was Air Supply. This is going to be a random question now that we're talking about this. What was the CD that you bought the most? Meaning you bought it and loaned it and then they never gave it back. So you needed to buy it oh again God. or you listened to it too much. So you oh needed to buy it again. Oh my God. I have so many of these. It's pathetic. It's pathetic. Uh, okay. So my first, it was a cassette, Tommy Keen. There's a, an artist named Tommy Keen. Singer, songwriter, like real heads know Tommy Keen. Most people don't, and he did not become famous. But the people who know him love him. And I'm one of the people who know him. So he, his, his major label debut was called Songs from the Film. Bought it on cassette. Wore it out. Bought it at least three more times. And then I got to know Tommy Keen later in life. Like we lived near each other in Los Angeles, which uh, is very strange. I, I worshipped him for a long, long time. Band called The Truth, also from the 80s. who had an album called Playground that I wore out. And then in the mid-90s, when I lived in New York with roommates, I played the first Ben Folds 5 album so much that my roommates had to hide it because it drove them crazy. And so I ended up having to buy that a couple more times as well. I don't know that I have a great answer for that one. I feel like Lance has a has a very specific answer. Oh, I do. Yeah. Appetite for Destruction. Oh, wow. I must have bought that thing four times. Well, I loaned it out. Sure. 
Mm-hmm. That one and um, was it Doolittle Pixies? Oh wow, sure. I am from St. Louis, so um, I already did not love Guns N' Roses. We had this big, beautiful new outdoor amphitheater uh, in I think 1991, and Guns N' Roses played it, and uh, Axel got all angry and left the stage, and then the fans tore it up. It was a huge deal, and so like this this whole thing got like basically burnt to the ground. And I've blamed Axl Rose ever since. So I've, I, he and I have a difficult relationship that he doesn't know anything about. But, you know, good for you. That's a whole separating the artist from the uh, art, I yeah. guess, right? Because yeah, I, I mean, guess so. They were responsible for that riot with Metallica, right? Like they refused to go out oh, I don't and know. play with Metallica. Was that in Canada? Know. This is the first I'm hearing. Axel, he, Axel is a troubled soul. God bless him. There's another one for whom fame was not such a good thing. Well, especially in the rock and roll biz. I mean, you had to live that lifestyle. I suppose. I had, uh, when it came out, I bought The Dirt, the uh, the Motley Crue book, and I read it, and then I loaned it to a friend on the condition that that friend never give it back to me. I was like, this (laughs) book has a dark energy. I don't want it in my house. (laughs) That book bummed me out. It's remarkable they're still alive. It's crazy. It's crazy they're still alive. It's crazy Vince Neil is still alive after that car accident. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. It's wild as hell. You're so right. That 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 does have a dark energy to it. Yeah. I truly I've never like I've never wanted to get rid of an object worse in my life than that book. <laughs> I'm going down after this I'm going downstairs and that's leaving the bookshelf. Yeah. Get it out. Get it out of the house. Well, Dave, do you have any other podcasts that you're working on? Um, yeah, well, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're like ideating a, a, a second uh, season of not necessarily waiting for impact because I think that story has, has been told, but uh, there is uh, another Dave Holmes passion project that is uh, potentially in the works. Uh, there are a couple things, but they're, it's a little too early to talk about it. That'll be my, my tease. <laughs> that That's the post credits scene. There's, there's stuff coming, but we just can't. We don't know what it is just yet. Is it as obscure as the sudden impact storyline? I believe so, yes. I believe so, yeah. It's a famous story, but there's a specific person who I want to follow uh, within this uh, specific famous story who is not uh, himself famous. That's Big market tease. Say. Yeah. Uh, my last question is, did you ever watch Terror Train? <laughs> No, I never did watch Terror Train. I probably won't. I'm not great with no, scary it's okay. movies. Yeah. I'm not great with scary movies. I appreciate the uh, honesty, too. This is a... Uh, it, everyone's talking about Terrifier 2 right now, and that's something that I'm even less likely to watch. I'm a huge Terrifier fan. We actually had David Howard Thornton on the show, who plays Art the Clown, back in the day when he wasn't there's banned there's a clown? Twitter. Yeah, the clown's the killer. Yeah. Yeah, oh, Art the Clown, no. yeah. No, absolutely not. <laughs> nope. He did such a great job in the first one. And we we reached out to him on Twitter and he came on. He was super nice. Does all sorts of impersonations and yeah. voices. Very funny individual. And then I think he said some things on Twitter that were towards, at the time, the current presidential administration. And he got oh kicked off of Twitter. I, I have no other way to reach him. But I was a big fan of Terrifier. Yeah. And what I've heard from Terrifier 2, like the, the word on the street, I don't think I'm going to watch it. I think it's like too much for me. That's yeah. That's what I'm hearing. Uh, yeah, we had a little uh, little talk in our Esquire Slack about it. One 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 person who has a a stomach for horror uh, watched it and said that she nearly lost consciousness 
uh, during it. So, wow. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I'm hearing nothing but uh, but things like that, and I don't need that in my life. I don't need that in my life. <laughs> that's a great, like that's real a life is weird point. enough. Real life is scary enough. I don't need it. <laughs> uh, I, on the other hand, think that is a fantastic review. I'm going to be checking it out when it comes to VOD. Uh, anything that can make me stay awake, uh, you know, that I start past like 8 p.m. I'm all I'm all for that. Okay. Okay. It's long yeah. too. <laughs> that's it's true. Just... Way too long. Yeah, it's like two Lord. and a half hours. <laughs> really? No. Yeah. I think no. it's 220. Mm-mm. Yeah. Jesus. No. No. <laughs> I couldn't even... Here's... I couldn't get through the ad campaign for Smile. That's like... That's <laughs> how much I'm able to engage with the genre of horror. Can't do it. That looks like... That That does look good. Does it? I don't... Yeah, What's your genre? Too spooky. What's your too scary. genre of choice? Uh, I mean, I guess... I don't know. Um... Uh, they don't really make them a whole lot anymore, but like really talky indie movies, you know, your uh, your Ed Burns and like early Noah Baumbach and Whit Stillman and things like that. Like, I think my all time favorite movie is Broadcast News. So just That's things a really where like good movie. It's such a great movie. It's such a great movie. Yeah, things where like you know semi funny adults just like talk about stuff and not much else happens. It's kind of I guess my genre. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing. There's wrong nothing with wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Broadcast, broadcast News is a great movie. Whatever. Yeah, it is. It is. Everyone watch Broadcast News. Terrifier <laughs> Two can go fly a kite. I am not. I'm not into it. I am not into a murderous clown. Not now. Not now. It, as a matter of fact, like there's so much stuff that people are like, "Oh, this is great," but it's like the subject matter is too heavy. And when it's finally time for me to like sit on my couch and zone out, I want to zone out. Give me Bachelor in Paradise. Give me Night Flight TV. Do you guys know about Night Flight TV? No. No. The USA Network had a show called Night Flight, late night on Fridays and Saturdays. And they showed music videos and old like cult movies and punk rock documentaries and whatever. And now there's an app called Night Flight. I think it's called Night Flight Plus. And uh, you can get it for Apple TV. It's like five bucks a month. And they have a whole bunch of old episodes with the commercials from, like, the mid-'80s. And then, like, just a whole server of, like, crazy cult movies and and, uh, and just, like, just good, weird stuff. We went down a Judy Tenuta rabbit hole on Night Flight last night. So that'll give you an indication. All right. Well, Dave, thank you so much for uh, hanging out with us here today. You guys. Yeah, I really appreciate it. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Let's stay in touch. (laughs) 